This morning, we are studying heaven and the life of the world to come. The last two weeks, we've given attention to, uh, we looked at hell last week, and uh, we, we kicked off the series the week before that. And, you know, as we're talking about heaven this morning, I can really think of no better topic to tackle as young adults this morning, because we are fresh off the Taylor White funeral, for those of you who are here, uh, the 21-year-old the, uh, at GCU who is jogging, who is hit by a car, died on the scene, the driver peeled off, hit and run. Uh, his parents, Nate and Angela, are one of us. Angela uh, leads worship here from time to time at New Life. Nate is heavily involved in missions. Uh, so, you know, yesterday we, we had a celebration of life and a funeral for him, and um, coming right off of that, you know, we, we ought to wrestle and look at what Scripture says about the hope that we have for the life of the world to come. Because how many of you know that life is not about this life? That there is more for us. There is a life of the world to come that can anchor us in hope regardless of the questions and the doubts and the struggles and the suffering that we go through in this life. Somebody say amen to that. We have hope for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so this morning, I want to title this message on heaven and the afterlife for the redeemed, Rethinking Heaven. And what we're going to do is we're going to start with some common ideas or descriptors of the afterlife uh, for the redeemed specifically and see how those measure up and align or don't align with what the narrative of Scripture says about the life of the world to come at large. But before we do that, let's quiet ourselves, let's position ourselves, let's uh, come to the Lord and quiet our hearts and be still for a moment as we invite the Holy Spirit to take his rightful place, the focal point of our attention. Jesus, you are King. You are Lord. You are the focal point of human history and the one whom all of this is about. So we come this morning under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we ask that uh, your kingdom would come and your will would be done and your rule would be extended over each and every one of us this morning and for all of our days. That kingdom of life, that kingdom that's characterized by hope and joy and healing and reconciliation with one another and with the Father, let that kingdom rule in this place and in our lives this morning. And we ask and plead that the kingdom would also be extended to the White family, to Nate and to Angela, and the loss of their 21-year-old son, Taylor. God, would your kingdom come in that family, and would your will be done in their relationships, in this grieving process as it is in heaven? Would you anchor their souls in hope? 
anchor them in peace, anchor them in joy as much as they are able to have it? And would you give them this day their daily bread? Would you help them walk through this grieving process with strength and fortitude, knowing that death is not the end? And Lord, as we study your scriptures this morning, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our good teacher. And we pray that you would instruct us according to your word and that these words and these ideas that this fallen person has, I pray that you would use this for your glory. Would you teach us and instruct us according to your will? Let your kingdom come and your will be done this morning as it is in heaven. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Common descriptions, excuse me, of the afterlife. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of ways that we can explain and maybe propose what the afterlife, specifically for the redeemed, is going to be. But I have a list of three that I want to uh, touch on because I think they're three of the primary ones that we see uh, and therefore we ought to give attention to. So the first one is this. We can put it up. Some would describe the afterlife or heaven specifically as otherworldly. In other words, it's somewhere up there, disassociated from life down here. How many of you guys have heard this before or or know how this fits into the theological framework that some people have of the afterlife? Up there, there's some time after we die, we're kind of going to be whisked away and we're going to live up there, disassociated from anything here on earth, which brings us to our second one. Some would describe it, metaphysically speaking, as spiritual. That there's going to be a lack of a physical dimension. Uh, It's primarily going to be some sort of like phantom living where we're all spiritual. We're not really sure what that looks like or feels like, but we know it's not going to be physical. So we're going to be A, up there, and B, just these phantom things that we don't really know and can't really quantify. Okay, so otherworldly and spiritual. Uh, A third descriptor, and I always get a kick out of this one. Some people describe it as this. We can put it up. An eternal worship service. How many of you guys have heard this? Where for all of eternity, we're going to be standing around and just worshiping together. And we're going to be singing songs, and we're going to be falling on our face, and we're going to be uh, singing and singing and singing, and there's going to be flags that are being waved, right? And trumpets that are going to be blasted, and so on and so forth. Uh, These are common notions of the afterlife, specifically as it relates to the redeemed. And I think these are important to keep in mind because there is a remnant of truth and a certain measure of truth in every single one of these. I think we all could probably find some biblical justification for each of these. But yet, when we take a good hard look at the narrative of Scripture, that is Genesis through Revelation, and the, uh, the culmination of teachings that the Bible offers us as it pertains to the afterlife, we find that we actually are invited into a much more robust view of the life of the world to come. And that though we can give little snapshots to what it's going to be, maybe in these Uh, descriptors, maybe in others, but we're beckoned and invited into, as we study scripture, this more durable and robust framework of the life of the world to come. And so to effectively explain heaven and what the Bible really says about heaven, we uh, need to start from the beginning. 
So buckle up. That'll be another three hours. We're going to go Southern Baptist style on this. We'll be here. We got lunch potluck after in the kitchen. Just kidding. Some of you wish I was serious. I'm not, sadly. Maybe someday. But uh, we're going to start at the very beginning of Scripture and see how the afterlife fits into the narrative in which we have been invited into. Because in order for us to really have a biblically rooted and uh, Christologically centered uh, uh, conviction on the afterlife, we ought to start from uh, the very beginning and what God does at the beginning of human history and has been up to for ages past. So I think an appropriate way to start is with a question. And the question is this, why were we created in the first place? Uh, what's the purpose of humanity? What's the purpose of this existence that we have been uh, created into and brought into here in life on earth? We find this in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, surprisingly enough, not so surprisingly, in Genesis 1, verse 27 to 30. When God creates man and woman, and he says this, it says this, I should say. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, this Latin phrase that we hear very often, the imago Dei. He created him male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have, what's that word? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So we see here in Genesis this instilling of diminutive power into the imago Dei, that is, into man and woman. These creatures that God created as categorically different than any other creature, he said, have dominion and rule over the face of all creation. We see this uh, crucial uh, point in human existence further articulated by the psalmist in Psalm uh, chapter 8, verses 4 to 8, when it says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is engaging in some existential uh, contemplation and, and thought in these grand ideas. What is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him, what's that word? Dominion. We see this again. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet and her feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Using parallel language here. Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, speaking of the purpose in which man and woman was created and their primary task and their primary uh, vision that the creator had in mind when he created them. And so we see, based on Genesis and on Psalms and in the Old, Old Testament at large, that the purpose and intended existence of man is twofold, to know his creator 
and to rule his creation. So we see back in Genesis 1, God creates man and woman in his image. He breathes the breath of life into them. Interestingly enough, the Greek word in the New Testament that Paul uses for the Holy Scriptures being inspired by the Holy Spirit, theopneustos, this is the Greek equivalent to this word in Hebrew that's speaking of God breathing life the breath of life into man and woman. And so he, he makes them with a categorically different existence than the rest of creation because he gives them the capacity to choose, the capacity to think for themselves, the capacity to reason, and therefore the capacity to love, the capacity to have relationship with him because you cannot have true love without the will. And you cannot have true love without choice. And you cannot have true love without this capacity for deep, rich relationships. And God created and breathed into man and woman this capacity to love him. And so this was their primary and intended purpose to know the one whom they were created by and whom they were created for. But... Their purpose in existence really takes another shape when God speaks in Genesis 1 and, and, and Psalms 8 through the psalmist and gives man and woman dominion and rule and authority over all creation. They weren't just made to know their creator and have conversations with him unending for all of eternity, but instead they were tasked with a very specific purpose to rule and to extend their dominion and authority over all creation of the earth. And so in, in a certain sense, they were the mediators between the earth and between the great creator and had relationship with the creator in the process. Are you guys with me? Um, and here, I think, is where we tend to get off because we, whether ourselves or whether maybe some people in our spheres of influence, can so often, and we've probably heard this before, uh, propose the notion that we were created to worship God. How many of you have heard this before? We're all familiar with it. We were created to worship God, and again, we're dealing with a partial truth here, because I think implicitly what we mean when we say we were created to worship God, we tend to view that as we were really created to sing songs to our creator. And we equate worship exclusively with this verbal expression of praise and these songs that maybe we sing in a corporate worship setting. And so I think we need to redefine here what exactly we mean when we say worship. Because we see a totally different definition here in the book of Genesis and with the intended existence of man. Because if we propose that worship is primarily the singing of songs and the emotional expression of praise, then that's kind of like equating a marriage to only giving extravagant compliments all the time. And let me tell you, for those of you who are married and and who are engaged and who are trying to woo right now, we all can attest to the fact that obviously that is not what a, a true, fruitful relationship looks like. Because my wife, Jacy's here this morning. She's the hottie up front in the denim jacket. Yeah. If we've been married for four years going on uh, in July, and just in these short four years of life, I know that if I only paid compliments to JC and did nothing else, we would have a horrendous marriage. Because inevitably, the time would come where I said, oh, babe, you are so uh, beautiful, and you're gorgeous, and you're an amazing mother, and Jeff, I'm not looking at you. Um, and I love you so much, and you are just the, the best person on this entire planet. 
Well, she could turn to me and say, oh, thanks, babe. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, can you help me with the dishes? Woman, I just paid you a compliment. Like, no, you, my job is done here as the man. But how many of you know that my love uh, really takes its full shape when I'm up at 3.30 in the morning feeding my five-year-old, five, not five-year-old, my gosh, five-month-old, <laughs> scale back, <laughs> you know, midnight snacking. We're, we're cultivating some bad habits here. Five-month-old, I just lost you all right there, dang it. How many of you know that my love takes full shape when I'm feeding my five-month-old at 3.30 in the morning so that my wife can sleep? Or wiping foul feces off my toddler's butt and changing his diaper? Or giving my wife gifts or surprising her? My love takes full shape, not necessarily with the compliments and the lip service that I pay to JC, but with actualization, with tangible expressions of love. Could not worship be the same thing? Is worship more than just singing songs? Is worship more than just lip service to God, however uh, attached and associated our heart may be in the process? Could worship be more than just singing songs? Well, Genesis 1 and the narrative of Scripture at large shows us that there is more to it. That there is a physical and even occupational shape that worship takes in our relationship with the Lord. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 12. We don't have it up, but... He says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then Paul actually has the audacity to continue that thought and say, for this is your, anybody know it? Spiritual worship, or some translations say true worship. In other words, the, the uh, giving over of the physical and tangible substance to God is true worship. And it is equal to, if not more, worship than singing songs to God. And so equating worship with just the, the singing of songs and the emotional expressions, that is part of it, but it is not the whole picture. And so when we go back to Genesis 1, we even see, and, and for this reason, it's justified that we don't see Adam and Eve kind of sitting in the garden, and Adam's got his acoustic guitar, you know, conveniently placed over a certain location, and he's like strumming, and, and he's playing, and you know, they're, and they're singing songs to God 24-7. We don't see that. What do we see? We see them living in their pre-fallen state in the imago day of God. And by them just being them, and by them getting their hands on the creation that God had uh, given them over to and allowed them and empowered them to exert their dominion over, by them walking in the true uh, purpose of God for their lives and them being in the imago day, they were fulfilling their true acts of worship. And that is not to say that they never sang songs to God. That is not to say that they never poured out uh, emotional and verbal praise to the Creator, but we see a different shape and a more robust shape that their worship took, and that is tending that which God had created and living out their vocation as the people of God and extending their rule over the earth. Are you guys with me? And so I think when we realize this, we see that the narrative of Scripture at large, even outside Genesis, but Exodus then through Revelation, the rest of the Bible makes sense, doesn't it? 
Because if we view it along these lines and the, the, the intended purposes of man, then we see that we weren't created just to kind of be whisked away and brought up to heaven somewhere, but we were created to rule and to reign and actually to worship God through the works of our hands. And so as we look at scripture at large then, it isn't uh, anymore this disjointed list of stories that, man, I'm not really sure what to do with the judges and I'm definitely not sure what to do with those deep prophetic books, you know, the deep cuts of the Old Testament, like, man, what? Valley of Dry Bones? Okay, great. A, a statue with a gold head and a silver body and bronze leg? Okay. But instead, we see this as a narrative of God's redemptive story. One massive meta-narrative, as theologians have termed it, of God starting Uh, in the Garden of Eden, and then through the fall, upon the fall, I should say, ransoming for himself a people and restoring humanity back to himself. And so we see the scripture really as, as one massive cohesive story documents, and we have a slide for this, it documents God's redemptive work, which really takes two primary forms. And that is one, the, uh, to reconcile man and woman back to himself. That is relationship and to reestablish their role as rulers of the earth. The entire uh, narrative of God's redemption that has spanned throughout human history can be uh, culminated and described and explained within these two boundary lines, where God was after reconciling man and woman, all humanity, back to himself so that they can live in restored relationship with their creator. But that wasn't all. He also was wooing humanity back to himself and and reestablishing their role as rulers. Because again, what was lost in the garden was proximity to God the Father and to to their creator. And and, uh, uninhibited and unbridled relationship with their God. And he didn't just restore that, but what was also lost was this dominion and this ruling. And because the Imago Dei had been marred and scarred and dragged through the mud through the sin, God had to uh, take them out of the garden and allow them to live life on the earth where the, sp- the sweat of their brow would produce their work and children would be produced through uh, painful labor. And he gave humanity over to their sin and allowed them to eat the fruits both uh, figuratively and literally of their uh, sin. But it was all after that, restoring, reconciling, redeeming, and, and calling back humanity to himself and reestablishing their God-given role that they lost in the garden in Genesis 1, or Genesis 3, I should say, uh, as the rulers of all creation, the mediators between God and his created order. Um, so what do we do with this? How does this relate to the afterlife? We're going somewhere, I promise. Some of you are like, that was just the intro? Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. That wasn't just the intro. Um, so the afterlife fits into this uh, in this way. If we misunderstand the nature of God's redemptive work, then we misunderstand the nature of the afterlife, which is the end of God's redemptive work. If we misunderstand what God's up to in human history today and and what he's been a part of in history past, then naturally we're going to have a skewed view of how this whole story ends. Does that make sense? So it's really important that we understand what exactly God was after in his redemptive plan so that then we can have a clear picture of what the afterlife is going to look like and the purpose of the afterlife. Because I think at this point... 
some of us, if not many of us, have held or currently do hold to the notion that the primary work of redemption of God for us was to save us from our sins. And that is absolutely a shape that the redemption of the Lord takes, but that is not the entirety of God's redemption. Instead, he was after the reconciliation of all creation. He was after the reconciliation of relationship between him and man and women, but he's also after the, the reestablishment of their role as rulers. And I think if we assume that, that the forgiveness and deliverance of our sins is the primary shape that God's deliverance uh, and redemptive purposes uh, take in our lives, then we can have this notion of the afterlife as escapism. That God kind of throws dynamite on his, on his plan and says, well, the earth's fallen and it's kind of going to hell in a handbasket anyway to use an old preacher, you know, word or ter- terminology. I don't know, whatever. I'm gonna keep going. Throwing dynamite on it and blowing up the earth, but whisking us away right before it blows up. And now we kind of live in this ethereal existence of heaven. It's escapism. But if we have a more robust view of God's redemptive purposes at large, then we can see that he was not just after the reconciliation of humanity to himself as far as relationships, but he is after the redemption of all creation here. He's not going to throw dynamite on his project that he started at Eden just because there was sin and say, okay, well, I guess we're done with that. Time for plan B, heaven. Come on, everybody. Hurry, hurry, hurry. But instead, he's after this reconciliation and grand narrative of redemption that started the minute after the fall took place. He said, okay, we're sticking with plan A here. There is no plan B. There is a plan A in you guys being my Imago Dei and you guys having reconciled relationship with me and being my rulers on earth. That will not change. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And we see scripture, especially New Testament passages, entail this, this greater narrative of not just forgiveness of sins, though that's a part of it, but this, this greater redemption of all creation. Specifically in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul puts it so eloquently in this way. Verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is us, the redeemed. For creation was subjected to futility. That is, after sin, after Adam and Eve took of the fruit and and deliberately disobeyed God, they weren't just culprits here, but all creation then suffered. Creation itself was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation plays into God's redemptive work somehow then, where God's not just going to wash his hands with creation and say, well, we had a good run, but man and woman kind of screwed it up. Sorry, earth. Peace out. But instead, he's all about redeeming it. And this redemption then we see is much bigger than us, isn't it? Though we play an integral part, and though we're arguably the central component of God's redemption and the focal point, there is also the redemption of the entire cosmos that God is after here. And through this narrative of redemption, Genesis, through Revelation, we see God ransoming back creation to himself 
And Jesus comes and he kind of kicks the door in and offers salvation to all of the nations of the world. What was an, uh, an exclusive religion of Judaism then became the inclusive religion uh, of the entire human race. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come and be reconciled to the Father. And then he promises, I'm returning. And I'm coming back. And you guys aren't left as orphans, but I'm going to come to you. And so he sends the Holy Spirit And now we as the church await for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And upon this second coming, we see in the book of Revelation, there is a myriad of different apocalyptic events that involve some crazy looking horses and that involve some pretty intense plagues. Whether you want to take that figuratively or literally, there, there is this uh, kind of collage of apocalyptic and eschatological events that take place. But then after everything has come to pass... We see John in Revelation 21 catch this vision of the final destiny of the redeemed. Revelation 21, 1 to 5, and we're going to skip around and then jump to 22 to 27. But he says this, Then I saw somewhere up there in existence, and the earth was burning, and everything was kind of destroyed, and we were kind of ghosts up there. No, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For yes, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself Uh, will be with them as their God. That's the relational reconciliation, right? Bringing us back into the Imago Dei, uh, renewing and restoring and redeeming the capacity to love and to know our creator. But he goes on. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And so this holy city coming down from heaven to be the new habitation and the new heavens and the new earth for the people of God. And then, you know, the next few verses go on to explain what the city will look like and beautiful poetic language that that the city is going to be laced with jasper and with sapphire and with emeralds and all of this gold and beautiful gems and pearls being interlaced into the streets and the walls of the city and it's beautiful and John then says that the that the city is about and and you know scholars have done the math now and and we can deduce that he says it's about 1380 square miles long and deep and high which is twice the size of Texas, might I add. Okay, so we got a city here coming down from heaven that's twice the size of Texas for the redeemed to live in. And after he describes in poetic language what it'll look like, he goes on and he says this in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, as if it's this habitat for which every nation on earth, redeemed, will live for all eternity. 
But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who desires what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This beautiful city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. We see this again uh, echoed in Isaiah 65, which came before this passage in Revelation. And we'll skip around here because there's kind of a lot to this. But uh, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Sound familiar? And the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. This is Isaiah. This is Old Testament, people. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then here's the shape it will take. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. We skip to verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so it's this new Jerusalem explained both in the Old and the New Testament as this city, this dwelling place of the redeemed, that will comprise of us working and getting our hands on the creation once again. And the entirety of our Imago Day and existence will be redeemed. And so we see, you know, with the narrative of Scripture at large, this idea that heaven and, and our eternal dwelling place is somewhere up there, and disassociated from God's intended purposes that began in the Garden of Eden, it's completely disjointed from God's redemptive purpose, isn't it? It's completely disjointed from what God has been up to from Genesis all the way to Revelation and and in our lives today. God is after reconciling man and woman to himself and reestablishing their role as rulers over all creation. Um, And what begins in a garden in Genesis ends in a city. And God then has even redeemed human culture and technology itself to where they living as the Imago Dei can now exert their rule and dominion with creativity and with technological advances and, and living together as the people of God in this holy city for all eternity. This is what God is up to. This is the final chapter or we can argue the first chapter, really, of the entire story of us and our ruling with God. And so it's no wonder when we view the afterlife in this context for the redeemed that we can see the New Testament writers were all about hope, 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 hope. Guys, hang in there. Church, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're struggling with sickness. I know you're impoverished, but there is hope in the life of the world to come. And so therefore, the afterlife, when we look at it in this way, ought to give us hope in our current afflictions and hope in the life that we live in the here and the now. You guys still with me? Let me wrap up by giving a couple closing thoughts. Uh, When we view heaven, or that is our ultimate existence, our eventual existence, um, I think we can come to believe two separate things. The first is that when we really take a good hard look at scripture, we find that heaven, you know, in the way that we understand it, is not our home. 
heaven somewhere whisked away up there is not where we're going to live forever and ever, but God is after the reconciliation of all uh, humanity and the reconciliation of the earth and the entire cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth. And so therefore, the life of the world to come will be ruling and exerting our authority in a kind of tangible substance in our glorified bodies. Um, the new heavens and the new earth are eventually our home. And then number two, um, we then ask the question, um, what, what is heaven then? Okay, heaven is obviously in scripture. Yes, it is. Heaven is obviously spoken of as a place where the righteous dwell. Yes, it is. But I side with a number of theologians uh, in believing that heaven, and you guys can disagree with this, but, but I believe when you take a good hard look at scripture like we have and in other ways that heaven is spoken of, um, that heaven is more of the intermediate state for the redeemed. That we see the redeemed who have died and the martyrs live in the existence of God in this heavenly realm, but yet at the very end, they don't stay there because they're still the resurrection of the dead. Their physical bodies will be raised from the dead. We will rise with Christ, and then the new heavens and the new earth will come. And so I tend to believe, again, not just me, but a number of theologians, that heaven is this in-between state, this blessed state where to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, that the righteous dwell, but they are still waiting for something. They're waiting for resurrection. They're waiting for all creation to be redeemed and reconciled and restored to God the Father. And so we as the church today await for this life of the world to come that is not just some ethereal existence somewhere up there, but is this new heavens and new earth that God will redeem and bring his uh, redemptive purposes to a culmination. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for not giving up on us. We thank you for not throwing in the towel of your redemptive purposes. We thank you for not washing your hands of us and, and, and uh, kicking us out of your family because of our sin. But we thank you that you are the great redeemer, redeeming not only us, but redeeming all creation to himself. Thank you that you will one day finally and fully reestablish us as the rulers of the earth and as sons and daughters with unbridled, unbroken relationship with you, where we walk with you in the cool of the day, where we look at you face to face, where we talk to you and love you for all of our days. And yes, we will sing worship to you. And yes, we will give you verbal and emotional expressions of praise, but our very vocation as tenders of the city of God, as sons and daughters who rule and exert dominion over, that will be worship. God, let it be. Jesus, come quickly. Let your kingdom come on this earth, but come quickly. Come for your church. Come for your bride. Come for the redeemed. We long for you, Jesus, and we long with all creation for the cosmos and everything in it to be made right once again. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, we got some discussion questions as usual up here for you. God bless you as you discuss. Uh, enjoy. Again, use these as a guide. Don't feel like you got to clip through all of them, but go as conversation kind of orders itself at your tables. Much love to you guys, and we'll pray together here in about 10 or 15 minutes. Much love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Guys, we went, well, not we, I went 
pretty long, and excuse me for being long-winded. That's just who I am sometimes. So we're going we're gonna to do things a little bit differently. If you want to hang out and keep talking shop, Gabriel, let's keep these discussion questions up here. Um, I'm going to formally dismiss us here in just a minute after we pray. But before that... Um, want to give you guys a couple book recommendations if this is up your alley and you want further study on this. One that I would highly recommend is Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And actually, we were talking at our table. N.T. Wright, he lives and breathes this stuff, man. He's all about meta narrative, new heavens, new earth. He's a great one to dig into. So Surprised by Hope and uh, A New Heaven and A New Earth by J. Richard Middleton. Uh, this one has an incredible and Distinct description of the meta narrative, the biblical plot, how sin plays into it, how salvation plays into it, shape of salvation, shape of eschatology, all of that. And I may be talking like one person when I'm giving you this book recommendation, but that's okay because if any of you are interested, these are great resources to have. Um, but hope this morning was helpful. Let me pray for us and then we can turn the music back on. We'll keep the discussion questions up and you guys can sit and linger as much as you'd like. Lord, we love you and we are all yours. We ask that as we leave this place and we go into the rest of our weeks, we pray that you would be put on full display in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would be the one who has brought glory and honor and praise. Hallowed be your name. Not our names, but your name. And let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Not our kingdoms, but overthrow those kingdoms. God, bring all under the lordship of Jesus Christ this week in our lives and in this earth at large. Uh, we love you, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us into all truth this week. Allow our hands, our feet, our lips, everything we give attention to this week uh, to give attention to righteousness and holiness and purity in life and obedience to King Jesus. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.